Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. I want to talk to you in this podcast about the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a portion of scripture that we've all heard many times before. I want to put it within the context of understanding the times and knowing what to do. When we consider the times in which we live, particularly within the Western culture and the state of the church in the Western culture, there are many things taking place that seem to be pulling people in various directions, looking for their moorings in what they resonate with and finding them pulling away from what they don't resonate with. In the era in which we live, it seems as though the future is up for grabs. Now, the future is a promise. The future is far more a promise than it is a prediction. Even biblically, the future is a promise and requires our participation for its fulfillment. Certainly, God, within his purview of creation, has determined the summing up of all things in Christ. And yet, in love, he created us to participate with him in that unfolding of his eternal purpose. And so, at some level, however small it may be from his perspective, or however large it may be from our perspective, we have a part to play in the unfolding of the future. All of our choices have consequences. All of our actions have ramifications for which we will be held responsible and accountable and for which we will give answer. And those things need to guide us and guard us and ground us in sobriety and in reverence, certainly within a context of the awareness of God's grace and God's mercy, and yet with the awareness that we are talking about answering to God for what we've done with what he's entrusted to us. And that's where the reverence or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some would say that we've never been here before. And they would say that based on perhaps a futuristic view of much of the trends in popular circles about prophecy. A real view, though, of the flow of history reveals that there have been many cycles similar to where we are in times past. What more than likely we could say is different is the nature of technology and how much it has advanced and the implications that has for how we use technology. There's a great deal going on in terms of experimentation with technology that is rapidly accelerating, some of which has wonderful implications, some of it horrific implications. And so I think it was Len Sweet who said that time and technology are in a dance and the dance is on a Titanic of sorts. And so what that will bring In terms of best-case and worst-case scenarios, we won't know until we arrive there. But what we believe about the future 
has a certain impact on the way we behave in the present moment. And so our anticipation of the future is very important, though we cannot predict it. We do know ultimately that God is going to sum up all things in Christ. We also know that there is always pushback from princes and powers and that there are definitely areas where the church is being marginalized in the current culture, uh, both in the Eastern world and the Western world. The church is undergoing great persecution in many places. Martyrdom is once again on the rise. Uh, the marginalization of the voice of the church in the Western world is, is taking place and within the church itself. There are many being pulled in various directions, and it seems as though the identity politics of the secular culture has crept its way into the body of Christ, and we are finding ourselves divided over identity politics, and I'm not sure we're doing the best we can to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, we, I, I'm reminded of uh, the Shakespearean line, we protest too much. Part of our Protestant heritage is to protest, and yet somewhere in that protest we've produced 33,000 denominations that split off out of disagreement and failed to heed the admonition to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those need to be concerns on the hearts of all true men and women of God that are called to lead the flocks of God by green pastures and by still waters. Having said that, I want to focus in on the story of Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones and make some contrasts and some comparisons to the day in which we live. We know that it opens in Ezekiel 37 with Ezekiel declaring that the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And it goes on to say, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, there are many layers within the context of this vision of Ezekiel, and it's perhaps, as Robert Jensen says, the culmination of the book of Ezekiel and perhaps the entire story of the Old Testament. I want to talk a little bit first and foremost about the bones themselves, because bones in Scripture represent both destiny and promises. And we would have to look back at at Hebrew culture to understand the rituals that were tied to bones. The burial of bones within the Hebrew culture was such that they didn't want their bones scattered and they didn't want their bones burned. This was common practice amongst the pagan nations, but this was not something that the Hebrews valued. Now, part of that is tied to their sense of promise related to the land, and part of it is tied to their understanding of being image bearers and covenant with Yahweh. But the burial of bones was a very sacred thing for the Hebrew people. And they didn't want their bones scattered and they didn't want them burned because metaphorically, the scattering of bones and the burning of bones implied the breaking of promises. I want you to listen to that. The scattering of bones and the breaking of bones implied the breaking of promises or the burning of bones. Scattering and burning of bones implied broken promises. Now, mind you, John tells us at the crucifixion that not one of Christ's bones was broken. And the reason is, prophetically, is because none of his promises were going to fail. Because God was faithful in preserving the bones of Jesus as the new Israel and the skeletal structure from which the flesh of the body of Christ was going to be reinstated and formed in this new body, this new ecclesia that would be made up of Jew and Gentile in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But in order to understand that bones were tied to destiny and promises, we might want to just consider the fact that Joseph, before he died, made his brothers swear to him that when God was to take them out of Egypt and bring them back to the land, that they needed to swear that they would take his bones with them. And certainly they kept their word, and by the time Moses is raised up as a deliverer, and he leads the people out as an army, in that night of the Passover, because they went out, it says, harnessed or in martial array. At the front of the line was Moses with Aaron and Hur and uh, Miriam and, and all the Levites. And, and there were those that carried the ark, but then there were those that were there that were carrying the bones of Joseph in the sarcophagus in which he was buried in Egypt. And so the bones of Joseph were right at the front of the line in fulfillment of the promise, and in also the sense of his bones being prophetic of their inheritance of the land and prefiguring Christ, 
who would be buried in the land and would rise from the dead. Now, the Hebrew culture, as you hopefully know, had a belief in a resurrection at the end of the age. And as N.T. Wright said, what they didn't expect was for resurrection to happen in the middle of history. So they weren't anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. It took them by surprise. They had no category for it. They had an expectation at the end of the age, but all of a sudden, Jesus, in his very body that he was crucified in, rises from death, hell, and the grave itself in the middle of history. And they have to get adjusted to that, and they have to get aware of all that that implies as they move now into the fulfillment of what God is going to do to the promise he made to Abraham. And in that 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appears again and again, presents himself alive by many convincing proofs, and weans them away from knowing him after the flesh. And each time we have a record of his appearances in the scripture, they don't recognize him, which means he has the ability to appear in different forms. Mark's gospel tells us he appeared to them in a different form. Clearly, every time he shows up, they have to discern him by his words and by his deeds. And they are being weaned away, as I said, from knowing him after the flesh to knowing him after the spirit. And he, in his person, all of his bones are kept when he enters the upper room without going through the gate on the first floor or the locked doors on the second floor and stands in their midst. He says, touch me and see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. He even eats a piece of broiled fish to help them realize this is not a hallucination. I'm not a ghost. This is not a vision. This is resurrection. This is new creation. This is a whole new order that I promised you I was going to bring into being. And my crucifixion established the premise for my burial and then my resurrection. And what's true of me is now true of you. I am the first fruits, and you are my family, and, and I'm the elder brother and the high priest. I'm the mediator of the new covenant, etc., etc., etc. And I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And then we're going to take the promise my father gave to Abraham. And you are going to, through me as the seed of Abraham, take the message and continue what I started in signs and wonders and in miracles of telling the good news until the whole earth is filled with my glory. And so Ezekiel becomes this prototypical vision, not just of the restoration of Israel to the land, but the culmination of history and the filling of the earth with glory. It's not either or, it's both and. But we've got a problem because this vision takes place in a season and in a time when Israel is languishing in Babylon. They have not been set free from captivity yet, and they are claiming that their hope is gone. By the time you get to verses 11 through 14, the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, 
these bones of the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we're indeed cut off. Now, in the Hebrew, it literally says we're cut off from our parts or we're cut off from ourselves. So there's a total sense of scattering and burned bones. And this implies promises are broken and failed because of their iniquity. They don't see any way into the future, and they don't even see themselves for who they are anymore. They are in a place of total dejection and total disidentification. They don't even believe who they are anymore as the house of Israel because they're so scattered in Babylon. They're so disconnected. They're burned over and dry, and they don't see a way into the future. Now, depending on who you talk to, even within the body of Christ, there are those who are prognosticating great catastrophe for the church. One of the things I think we can say with assurance is that the church is in God's hands and the church will survive, the true church. There may be many things that are going on in the name of Christ that have very little to do with what God intends to do that will dry up and fail and are just simply fads that will pass. But the true church will never, ever languish. It will always be a living witness to the ascended Christ and be a prophetic witness to the nations of the intention of God and make manifest his glory even before principalities and powers, both seen and unseen. And so when we think about the bones that Ezekiel is, is purveying and surveying, the Lord takes him by the Spirit and sets him down in the middle of a valley of dry, bleached, disconnected bones. And they are unable to be identified. This is a totally hopeless situation. He's in Death Valley. I remember watching Death Valley days growing up. He is in Death Valley as a metaphor. And God says to him, son of man, can these bones live? Now, it's interesting that Ezekiel is referred to as son of man on the one hand, that can be translated human one, or son of Adam. And so he is in type and shadow, reminiscent of God's original intent for Adam, the human one. But Jesus also refers to himself as the son of man from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, of the one who would be given a kingdom. So... Ezekiel could both be um, a metaphor and a type in this situation when he is called son of man as God's original intent for Adam and as a prefiguring of the last Adam and what he will accomplish. And yet God asks him a question, can these bones live? And the prophet is beyond the ability to answer because while he knows God can do anything, he's looking at something where he can't even make out which bones belong to which. Uh, this is a total boneyard of broken identity, lost hope, and everything is cut off from everything else, and the bones aren't even in the positions 
to form a skeletal structure on which flesh can hang that can make any sense of a discernible human being from what's left and burned over. And yet, what's about to happen is a reenactment of Genesis 2 when God makes man in his image and likeness and forms man from the dust of the ground and then from there breathes into his nostrils the breath of life so that man becomes a living being. So when Ezekiel is called to prophesy as he's commanded, the first prophetic utterance is going to bring an enfleshment that follows a connectivity of all the bones to their proper relationships, bone to its bone, that which every joint supplies. And I just quoted that from Ephesians because we need to understand how the two are related, that which every joint supplies, the joinings that bring us into identity. It's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for human beings to be alone. It takes two to know one, as the late anthropologist Gregory Bateson said. We cannot know ourselves by ourselves. And so the reforming of identity is essential in a culture where we have become highly individualistic. Let me just say this. We live in a culture of individuals. We have become so secularized that individualism has reigned now supreme for the last number of decades, and it's getting progressively more individualistic and in many ways more narcissistic, and for some people solipsistic, which is beyond narcissism. But we are not called to be individuals. We're called to be human beings, persons. In Christ, we are on a journey to becoming fully human, to becoming persons in the image and likeness of the persons of the Godhead, and in specific, in the person, the second person of the Godhead, the truly human one, the God-man, Christ Jesus. Because it is in seeing him that we see the Father, and knowing him, we know the Father. Anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. And so Ezekiel as a type both of the original man, Adam, and as a type of the God-man, the Lord Jesus, is called human one or son of man. And he is going to prophesy as he's commanded and there's going to be a sound, a rattling, and a coming together. There's going to be three phases by which this disidentity that has separated these bones and made them individuals, independent of one another, which is why they lost their identity, because you cannot know yourself by yourself. These individual bones are going to become one in their proper place and an identity is going to be formed out of the relationship between the proper bones. And so there's a sound, there's a rattling, and there's a coming together. The sound is the result of the prophetic utterance of 
Ezekiel as the prophetic agent that is declaring the word of possibility, radical possibility, in the face of seeming impossibility. Now, why is that important? Because I believe that men and women that are going to preach in the day in which we live need to move past many of the watered-down versions of the gospel and return to an apostolic preaching of the cross. Now, when I speak of the apostolic preaching of the cross, I'm speaking in the tradition of the ancient church where the cross included not just Friday afternoon where Jesus was crucified, not just Saturday where he harrowed hell, not simply Sunday where he rose from the dead, not simply the 40 days where he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, and certainly not simply the ascension, but rather all the way to Pentecost when the Spirit of God was given and poured out as a result of what took place at that cross. So the apostolic preaching of the cross is incomplete if we do not preach it from the behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist, to John the Baptist as prophet saying, I'm unworthy to stoop down and untie his sandal, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So he goes all the way from Calvary to Pentecost to prepare the nation for what's coming in the person and the work of Christ, in the one who is God in the flesh, the God-man. And the preaching of the cross, the apostolic preaching of the cross, is incomplete if it is not preached all the way from Friday to Pentecost, from Good Friday to Pentecost. With the fruit of that kind of preaching, there comes profound, revelation about who we are in Christ and what it means for us to move beyond being individuals in a secular culture of individualism to becoming formed by a story that we are greater together than we could ever be individually and that we're becoming persons. I contend, and it's the subject for another uh, podcast, an individual is not a person. An individual is, a, is an ancient Greek construct that goes back to Democritus four centuries before Jesus and the atomization of the universe, the reducing of everything down to an atom or a particle, which ultimately, by the time we get to the Enlightenment in the 17th century, I think, therefore, I am the atomization of the individual. And now we have, we use the term persons, but we really mean individuals because we are highly individualistic. And it's all about whatever I think, whatever I, I think, that's who I am. Well, I am far more than I think, therefore I am. And so, with all due respect to Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am is a flawed postulate. I am far more than what I think, and my thinking can oftentimes get me in trouble. So if I am what I think, then I may need to rethink who am I? Because unless I can answer the question, who am I in light of who made me and the reason I was made as an image bearer, I will fall far short of my eternal purpose. Because the Son of God came to bring me into the fullness of my purpose through his relationship with his Father. So when God speaks, God speaks Son. God has spoken in his son, and then sonship and daughterhood is the journey to glory for all of us in Christ. 
But when Ezekiel prophesies, there is a reminiscent awareness that what happened in Genesis 2, when God formed man from the dust of the ground, that all of that is coming together. And these individual bones are now finding their identity in their coming together. There's a sound. The Bible says, blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. There's a sound of faith. There's a listening of faith that causes a movement, a rattling, and, and an interacting that takes time to figure out where do I fit, where do I connect. But the Spirit is directing this. And in the process, the bones that belong to the bones that they're missing will come together because I cannot know myself by myself. But when they come together... There is a way in which they lock in, and as they all lock in, they form a skeletal structure that you can hang flesh on. Now, the word for flesh, when it says that flesh came over them, that word for flesh in the Hebrew is basar, from which we get the new covenant word good news. So these are all hints and metaphors of the gospel Christ himself, the word becoming flesh. So the skeletal structure of the promise of God needs to be fleshed out. But that's not enough because they're still lifeless. So the skeleton, the sinews, the muscle, the skin that covers them, that's all wonderful. Now we see not only everything taking shape, now we can identify unique persons that are related to other persons, but they're still dead and in their graves, and they need resurrection. And so he's got to prophesy a second time in alignment with when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And so Ezekiel will prophesy to the four winds, and yet these four winds are not impersonal winds. They are a type of the Holy Spirit. So the breath of God will come from the four winds and breathe on those that have been slain. So we have moved now from these disconnected, burned, dry, scattered bones to people that we can at least identify and say they had a history. They came from somewhere. These are the sons and daughters of Abraham. While they're dead, I still recognize them. They are still part of the journey. They have a history, and God values that history. God values their story. God values their personhood because God is personal, and God made us in his image and likeness. And now Ezekiel can see that this is the nation of Israel that came from the loins of Abraham. And in the process now, though they are in their graves, they are at least identifiable. And what needs to happen is a fresh breath of God has to come in and give them life and re-life them, revive them, so that they can stand on their feet as a mighty army. My dear friends, if we will be faithful in proclaiming the story 
by once again going into the story and learning how by the Spirit to interpret the story and to, as Len Sweet says, trust the story and preach the story from a place of the fullness of the Spirit with a conviction that God is going to confirm his word with signs and wonders following. I truly believe that there is hope for the future. I truly believe that there is a fresh awareness that will come of the power of resurrection life in Christ. I truly believe we will see another great outpouring of the Spirit and an awakening to all that the Spirit desires to do in us and through us and for us. And I believe we can shift things in favor of light driving out the darkness. Now, ultimately, that will not fully happen until the consummation of the kingdom. Mind you, I don't believe in triumphalism. I believe that is not what the scripture promises. I do believe we will battle evil until the coming of the Lord. But I also believe that there will always be places where light will push back darkness as a testimony of the future that is yet to come. And our prayer needs to be for a fresh coming, an inbreaking of the Spirit of God to reveal Jesus to the current generation of believers that are needing to find their identity in one another instead of in their individual selves. And that this journey to personhood needs to be reiterated once again and that I can't get to the future without those that God has joined me to. And that the people that I'm a part of are so significantly a part of where I'm going that I can't play my part without them. And so... What we need is men and women that can prophetically proclaim it's time to hear that our hope is not lost and we're not cut off. And our bones, while they're dried up, can be made moist again. We have withered due to lack of moisture and we have come to believe that all the promises are broken. They are not because the promise keeper cannot lie. R.W. Schambach used to say, if God said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll bring it to pass. We need to once again affirm our faith in the God who has made a covenant with us through Christ and has promised us that every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He keeps all of his bones, and we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. And when we can preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and be intentional about it, lest we grieve the spirit and are willing to preach from a perspective of the apostolic preaching of the cross, which doesn't stop at Friday afternoon, but goes all the way to Pentecost and beyond. I believe he will present himself alive by many convincing proofs in this generation. And we will see a harvest. And we will see a mighty army of lovers and laborers.
who will bear witness to a resurrected, ascended Christ. And we will see the Lord break through into a place of impossibility with the promise that with him all things are possible. Until next time, God bless you.